I'm turning today to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9 and verse 2. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 9 and verse 2. And after six days, Jesus taketh with him Peter and James and John, and leadeth them up into an high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And our subject is lessons from the transfiguration. And how can we deal with such a mighty theme in a single study this morning? But we shall try. Lessons from the transfiguration. Well, the Lord had spoken of his death and his resurrection. The previous chapter, verse 31, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And now, within a few days, he takes just three disciples up into a mountain and he is amazingly transfigured and appears before them in his divine glory, a manifestation of divine glory. Well, our first heading will be simply this, the purposes of the transfiguration. And reading again from verse 3, And his raiment became shining, exceeding white as snow, so as no fuller on earth can white them. Remarkable. His raiment, his clothes, just radiant and bright, impossible to look upon. And his face was as the sun, we read in Matthew and in Luke's gospel. And they were astonished and very much afraid. The transfiguration of Christ. Well, why? And we'll just summarize a number of reasons We can't do all of them, but some major seven reasons. This was a seal and a sign of his words, his prophetic words, that he would suffer many things and be killed and rise again the third day. And now as if to seal it on the minds of the three disciples, and in a moment we'll look at why only three, and why those three, but to seal it on their minds, his glorious appearance and manifestation of his divine glory. So it was to establish in their minds firmly that he is God. Well, Peter had not long since said so. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. He was the first to make that clear profession. But now it's really sealed before him and confirmed. So it, it shows the divinity of Christ and it confirms his words predicting his resurrection. Otherwise, how could they grasp it? How could they understand it? Such a thing would seem impossible to them and it would continue to seem impossible. They would put it out of their minds until he was raised from the dead. 
And then they would remember all these things and it would become so much clearer to them. So the transfiguration shows them his divinity, seals his words, and particularly his words about the resurrection. But then it teaches them to look to the eternal kingdom of Christ and not this present earth. You remember that as soon as he had predicted his death and resurrection, Peter had said, these things be far from thee, Lord. You cannot die. This cannot happen to one as glorious as you, the Messiah, the Son of God. Of course, they had in their minds, the disciples, the idea that he would be an earthly Messiah, ruling an earthly kingdom. Well, the transfiguration helps them to see that they're to look to something much more glorious, that he will be raised again, that there'll be a future glorious heavenly kingdom. And that's what they look forward to. That's what they must focus their eyes on. And the transfiguration just helps them to see this. But then, as we shall see as we go on, there appears with the Lord in the transfiguration, Moses and Elijah, Elias in our text here, and representing the law of Moses and all the old ceremonial and the prophets and the law and the prophets are seen to be in the transfiguration subservient to him and serving him and speaking of him and looking to him, the risen, glorified Christ. And so it is a way of impressing on the minds of the disciples what they will be taught, that all the Old Testament, the ceremonial, the types and the shadows and the clear didactic prophecies and symbolic prophecies of the prophets all point to Christ and Calvary. Because we read in Luke's Gospel that when Moses and Elijah spoke with Christ, they spoke of his decease. Literally, in the Greek, his exodus, which refers not just to his departing, but exodus implies a departing from one place in order to go to another. An exodus will always be out from in order to go to somewhere else. They spoke of the Lord's leaving this world and going to another, not just his decease, but in the Greek, his exodus, his going to glory, to heaven. That was the subject of conversation. In other words, it was impressed upon the minds of the disciples that everything in Moses, all those types and shadows, the temple, the worship in the temple, the sacrifices, the great acts of deliverance, the parting of the Red Sea, the parting of the Jordan, the water flowing from the rock at Horeb, all these things pointed to Calvary and to Christ and found their fulfillment in him and all the prophecies also. And Elijah, we're going to learn, was himself a type and a foreshadowing 
of John the Baptist, the forerunner, but we'll come to that. So this is a great purpose of the transfiguration, to impress these things on the minds of the disciples, Moses and the Elijah, the prophets, the great representative of all the prophets, are subservient to Christ. And then there's even more, because God the Father speaks from heaven, a great cloud, a light-emitting cloud, translated in our King James as a bright cloud, to conceal the glory of God. The Father speaks, and they hear his voice, and he utters these great words of commendation for the Son. Of course, the Father and the Son are equally God, equally eternal, equally authoritative, equal to each other and the Holy Spirit in every way. But when Christ was here in this world, he subordinated himself because he was our representative, obeying the law, obeying his heavenly Father, with whom strictly he is equal. And so here in the transfiguration, here is Christ, he's living on earth, a perfect life which qualifies him to go to Calvary as our spotless, pure Lamb of God, to suffer and die on our behalf. He had no sins of his own to suffer and to offer up his perfect righteousness. And in the transfiguration, the three representative disciples hear the voice of the Father commending him. He has achieved that and succeeded in that. He is going to be a perfect offering when he goes to Calvary, and that will be in their minds. You see the value of the transfiguration as their understanding deepens. But the question arises, why only three disciples? Why not all of them? Well, there are various answers that have been offered. Well, these were the three earliest disciples. Perhaps it suggested they were the three whose uh, were most understanding, nearest to the Lord, most capable of receiving this. Well, all that may be so. But there are other reasons also why there are only three disciples. Just supposing all the disciples had seen the transfiguration. Well, Christian people like us, throughout the subsequent ages, might be tempted to complain in the back of our minds, faith is hard. Why don't we all see a transfiguration? They had an unfair advantage. Why isn't there something visible for us? Some great sight or vision or apparition or wonder to consolidate our faith. Oh no, we are related to Christ by faith. We have many substantial proofs and indications of his answers to prayer, his transforming work in our own lives and hearts, 
is giving us enlightenment and understanding of spiritual things. We have so many evidences, but we can't say they had something very special, therefore surely we all ought to have. Only three were selected. This is not going to be something for all people. This is not going to negate faith or get in the way of faith. So it's only three. But it must be three because they are going to have to testify of this to the other disciples. Not yet, but after Calvary, after the resurrection, their instruction will be, you testify of this. And Peter does in his second epistle. We read it, the very words that he utters to people in chapter 1 of that uh, second epistle. For we have not followed cunningly devised fables, but he says, we made known unto the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And this voice, which came from heaven, we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. So some see it in the mouths of two or three witnesses, says the law of Moses, every word shall be established. So there were three selected, and they saw the transfiguration. But not all, and I want to draw a message from the three witnesses. Here's some other reasons why possibly these three. Peter, why was he selected? He would, to his great shame, deny the Lord three times. He would repent, he would be reestablished. But why Peter? Well, Peter was the first to utter the great confession. Thou art the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. He was the first to testify to Christ's divinity and office. And he would be the first to preach a sermon in the new church on the day of Pentecost Do you know we should reflect upon what happened on the day of Pentecost when Peter preached that first great sermon and what a sermon it was. But don't you think that humanly he would have been, well, highly apprehensive, afraid for his life? This is the great crowd that had screamed for the crucifixion of Christ. These people were intensely nationalistic Jews. These people had rejected a saviour. They wanted to cling to the law of Moses. And they wanted to imagine that they were special people. And they were already home and dry, spiritually. They were God's special people for all their disobedience. And anything said to the contrary, or anything about a messiah immediately inflamed their anger, their rage. Even long after this, when the Apostle Paul preached to them 
in a very same location almost, just a few yards away. They went for him, and he had to be delivered from the crowd, from the mob, from death and by the Roman soldiers in the fortress there. Don't you think Peter was afraid? He knew the potential of this great crowd. But he got up, notwithstanding, by the power of the Spirit, and he preached Christ, which involved preaching the wickedness of the Jews and their historic rejection of these things. It involved saying the things that were very worse for Peter and would enrage them most. But he stood and he took his life in his hands and he cried out to God and he preached and the Spirit of God blessed and thousands owned Christ and were pierced to the heart. So Peter would be the one who would stand first with great courage for all his previous weakness. And I think possibly that weighed very heavily in Peter being one of them who would see the transfiguration. He'd need that special fortification in his spirit. God prepared him as he prepares us. If you think about it, a true Christian walking with the Lord There'll be deep trials and difficulties in life. Amidst all the happiness and the times of triumph, there'll be some deep sorrows and setbacks and cruel disappointments from the world and from around you. And you'll have to stand against tremendous things to witness for Christ. But when you think about it, just like the Apostle Peter, God will have prepared you in some way. If only you call to mind his great blessings toward you. If only you kept in mind the greatest answers to prayer and kindnesses he's shown you. These things are intended to fortify you. And Peter had the transfiguration to help him, to strengthen him. It's a kind of type or pattern of our own experience too. Every treasured blessing is to be remembered because you'll need it and it'll help you to stand. So that's Peter, his testimony, his boldness. What about James? Why was James, the brother of John, chosen to witness the transfiguration? Well, again, there may be several reasons, but one that stands out is that he would be the first martyr among the apostles. Not the first martyr for Christ, but the first among the apostles who would give his life for his testimony when Herod had him executed by the sword. So James would be the one who would first lay down his life among the apostles. I'm sure that's why he was selected the most prominent to give his all, his everything, his very life. And then John. Well, John had a distinction, many, but one particular one, 
He was the only disciple to be right up close to the cross of Calvary, to stay there right on the front line when all the disciples are recorded as having forsaken Christ. They forsook him and fled. I think that others were on the fringe somewhere, beyond the women in the outer circle, out of harm's way on the very edge of the crowd that saw something of Calvary. But only John was right up close in the line of fire. Anyone could have pointed to him and said, he is one of them, as Christ suffered and died on Calvary. He stayed close to the cross, loyal to the end. And he was the one who was there when Christ passed over to a disciple the care of his mother after his death. It was John who was there, and it was John who took all the responsibility for her care and well-being from that very moment. And I think that that's the principal reason why John was included among the three privileged witnesses of the transfiguration. Well, there's a message for us, dear friends. This is the transfiguration. This is the greatest available occasion of really close communion with Christ during his entire earthly walk. To see and to sense close up his glory and his divinity. Doesn't that speak of close communion and privilege? And these were the three who were appointed to be the witnesses. So we want close communion. We can't have a transfiguration or an appearance or a vision, nor should we want it. But in our devotions and in our walk with Christ, we long for those treasured times when everything comes especially to life for us. And we really are carried away in wonder, love and praise. And we not only see the things of God as we read his word, but we see them in such an amplified manner. And we are so moved. And we feel the loving kindness and the goodness of Christ and a depth of assurance. Now don't you and haven't you felt those close times? They're not meted out to us all the time. It's not the constant experience of the Christian. Assurance may be much more constant. And happiness and indebtedness and gladness But there are special times. Do you want the special times? Then may I suggest to you, here are three qualifications. Salvation is solely by grace. It's unmerited and free. But in our striving in the Christian walk, will it bring us closer to Christ if we're ready to witness like Peter 
the first to confess him, the first to overcome his fears and to stand before that murderous crowd and to tell them their sin and to speak of Christ. That's Peter. That merited a special place at the Transfiguration to encourage him and to strengthen him. Witness for him. Be ready to speak for him. James, he gave everything. First to be martyred. Others followed. But he was the first. Same with us. There are Christians love Christ. They believe in Calvary. They worship him. They perhaps take up some acts of Christian service. But their own lives are still really receiving much too much emotional energy and dedication. My career, my home, my car, my this, my that, my experience, my pleasures, my promotion and well-being and status and so on. That's not like James, he gave everything. Of course we've got to take care of our homes and families. Of course we've got to be diligent and do these things. But Christian priorities, I will give him all. And I will serve him as much as I can. And take every opportunity. I lay my life at his feet. That's James, the first martyr among the apostles. Surely that's helpful if we want special visitations of the Lord in our private worship, in our walk and assurance. And then John, well, the example of John is obvious. No matter what it cost, he stayed close to Christ and to Calvary. There are friends among us in our spiritual family who very seldom stay for the Lord's Supper. It doesn't show a person who's staying close to the cross of Christ. When we come as a family to be moved by Calvary and to praise and thank him for for them, for this, they're off. That's a great shame, friends. Every day, self-examination, confession of sin, come close to Calvary, stay close to Christ, Honour him, love him. Make sure you never leave your first love like the people at Ephesus. Stay close to Calvary. Those are the three things I put to you will bring us into closest communion with the Lord. So there are lessons, even for our personal lives, from the Transfiguration. Let me talk for a while about the secrets of the kingdom. Mark talks about the secret of the kingdom. Matthew puts it in the plural, the secrets of the kingdom. That's what this is all about, the transfiguration. Look at verse 4. There appeared unto them Elias, Elijah, with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Luke tells us 
precisely what they were talking about, his decease or his exodus. So as I've already mentioned, it's shown them that Elijah representing the prophets and Moses the law and the worship of old and the ceremonies all lead and point to and symbolize and typify and foreshadow and speak of Calvary and Christ. And this is made clear to the disciples. It won't all dawn on them right here, but as time goes on, and particularly through Christ's crucifixion and resurrection, it becomes clearer and clearer, all the things they've heard and seen. But here it is, the secrets of the kingdom. What are the secrets of the kingdom? Paul uses similar language. The mystery, the secret. God has appointed him, he says, to preach the secret, the mystery of the Old Testament, the secrets of the kingdom. He tells us what one of them is, that the Gentiles should be saved, that the Gentiles will be in the kingdom, that the church of Jesus Christ will be the Jewish Gentile Church of Christ, the international church in which Jews and Gentiles are one, and there is no longer any barrier between them. Not all Jews, of course. Elect Jews, saved Jews. Not all Gentiles, of course. Elect Gentiles, saved Gentiles, will be in the one kingdom. That's, the, says Paul, the secret of the kingdom. But he utters other things too, and this is shown here. What are the secrets then of the kingdom besides the call of the Gentiles? There's an idea today among some evangelical preachers that the secrets of the kingdom are the ugly side of Jewish history. And it's put rather like this. I won't tire you with this because it'll take us off track, off the point. But the idea is this, that the Old Testament is all about how God was with Israel, the great things. But there is hidden there an ugly side, their disobedience and so on. And the secrets of the kingdom and the meaning, say, of the parables, which is about the secrets of the kingdom, is to bring out the ugly side. So it infuriates the Jews when they hear it. And they're against. But that's a very dismal and negative idea of what the secrets of the kingdom are. And it takes away the parables as figures and illustrations of grace and salvation. And besides, the ugly side of Old Testament history is no secret. The Old Testament makes it very plain. It speaks of the blessings and the privileges, and it speaks endlessly of the periods of disobedience and failure and judgment and captivity. That's no secret. That's no mystery. And it's a pity to hear this kind of teaching becoming popular. 
Now the secrets of the kingdom, the Old Testament, are the symbolic, typical, foreshadowing meanings. The Jews stayed with the literal. They said, God is so pleased with us as a nation, he's given us this ancient system of worship. The sacrifices and so on, and all the ablutions. And they stuck with the letter of the law, with the literal symbols. And not all of them, but so many of them, never looked at the meaning of those things. This symbolizes or depicts Messiah and the great sacrifice that would come. These sacrifices of animals cannot take away sin. They symbolize our dependence upon the great sacrifice that will come. All these washings cannot take away sin. They symbolize the purity and unreachability of God and the need of grace and free forgiveness from him. Those are the secrets of the kingdom, the meaning. So, for instance, when Moses struck the rock the first time at Horeb, and the water flowed, the provision for the people, the meaning was that by something being struck, stricken, pain and hurt, grace would flow from that riven rock. That's Christ. And Paul says so in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He lists many of the features of the Old Testament and points, shows how they point to Christ. It's Christ who was smitten, and from him comes, because he atoned for sin, comes the grace of forgiveness. And of course, top lady has it in his hymn, Rock of Ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. That's the secret of the kingdom. The secrets was the message which is in all the types and the shadows and in all the prophecies. Of course, the faithful and the earnest Jew of old times got it. They could see the secret even then. But it didn't come into full view to be proclaimed to all until the New Testament and the task of the apostles was to bring these mysteries and secrets which should have been seen by sincere, faithful hearts into the open light of day. And they did so. The Transfiguration speaks about this. Elijah and Moses speaking with Christ because they're all pointing to him. And he is the secret of the kingdom and all the blessings are found in him. Dear friends, our time is going so quickly and I wanted to make some comments just before we close with a final heading. Look from verse 3. His raiment became shining, exceeding white as snow, so as no fuller on earth can white them, and there appeared unto them Elias with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. 
And let us make three tabernacles, one for thee and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Poor Peter. He doesn't understand it yet. When he sees the transfiguration of Christ and Elijah and Moses subservient to Christ so that Christ is everything. He's the fulfillment of their worship and their prophecies and their types and their shadows. Peter goes back to the Old Testament and the Feast of Tabernacles and says, well, let us obey the Old Testament and let us celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles and let us build you booths. No, Peter, the whole idea of the transfiguration is to lift you out of the Old Testament. Not that the Old Testament is invalid. It is predictive and points to Christ and the new. So come into the New Testament. No, Lord, let's celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. Of course, it's a curious thing for Peter to say. He doesn't suggest that he builds booths for himself and the other two disciples. It's it's a very unselfish thing. It's a very reverent thing. He's thinking only of Christ and Elijah and Moses. But why build them booths? They're from glory. These are, uh, they're appearing clad in robes of glory and eternity. But he didn't know what he said. Verse 6, he wist not what to say. He was overcome with astonishment and amazement. But his instinct is to go back to the Old Testament. He'll soon lose that and he'll see the message of the transfiguration. Verse 7, there was a cloud that overshadowed them and a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son, hear him. His life is perfect. His words are divine and infallible. He is the author and the finisher of faith. Hear his reproofs. Hear his comforts. Hear his message. Hear his terms of salvation, repentance and faith. Hear him, all his instructions. This is my beloved son. Hear him. Now, there's something left. There's a query. There's a problem. Verse 8, suddenly when they had looked round about, they saw no man anymore save Jesus only with themselves. And there's something on their minds. And as they came down from the mountain, he charged them, that they should tell no man what things they had seen till the Son of Man were risen from the dead. And they kept that. They kept that saying. But what was on their mind? Verse 10. They questioned one with another what the rising from the dead should mean. He's going to suffer many things and be killed and rise from the dead. But our problem is this. We've just seen Elijah. 
in glory. But surely he's got to come first. Malachi says so. The prophet says it clearly, that Elijah will appear. There's no sign of him. And they asked him, saying, Why say the scribes, they taught it all the time, that Elias, Elijah, must first come? And the Lord Jesus Christ, in verse 12, he answered and told them, Elias verily cometh first, and restoreth all things. So he makes their problem worse. And how then is it written of the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be set at naught? If Elijah is going to come and restore all things, that suggests to the mind of the disciples that all will be well. Elijah will come. And then presumably Christ will take his throne. What's this about his dying and rising again? Verse 13, the Lord's words, But I say unto you that Elias is indeed come. He's come already. And they have done unto him whatsoever they listed, whatever they wanted, as it is written of him. Whatever did he mean? Elijah has already come. Well, he tells them elsewhere, if you will receive it, Elijah is John the Baptist. He is Elijah. Now, John the Baptist himself was interrogated by the Sanhedrin Council, the chief priests, scribes, and Pharisees' representatives, and they said, Are you Elijah? And he said, No. Well, he wasn't literally Elijah, but he was the one who Elijah represented. Elijah was a literal prophet who did miraculous things and taught, but at the same time, he was a foreshadowing, a representative, a symbol, if you like, of John the Baptist, who would come. And John the Baptist came, it is said, in the power and spirit of Elijah. So this is very interesting, that arising out of the transfiguration comes a problem. Well, we've seen Elijah, and that reminds us, he must come and restore all things. What does it mean? Elijah has come. And everything that was said of him has happened to John the Baptist. And in a sense, he has restored all things because the whole nation went after him and listened to him and sought baptism and repentance in readiness for the Messiah. Elijah has come. Don't you see, just as we close, this is a great key to all Old Testament prophecy. You're not to expect literally Elijah, but you are to interpret Elijah when it comes to prophecy figuratively.
He is a figure of John the Baptist. When you interpret prophecy in the Old Testament, you do not expect it to be literally fulfilled in the terms which it uses. You expect it to be, as it were, symbolically fulfilled, figuratively fulfilled. So Elijah will come, John the Baptist will come in his power and spirit and we, the one who is the, represents Christ and announces him the forerunner. And there are today many people who go through the Old Testament, it's a, it's a pity, and they say, oh yes, I understand the Red Sea is, it literally happened and it's also a figure of how Christ would come and he would open up the way to salvation. The Holy of Holies. I understand that it literally was there, but it is a figure. Only the high priest was allowed in, only once a year, and him not without shedding of blood, and it all means something inaccessible. There is no access achieved to God until Christ comes. And the veil is parted, and the chains lifted, and the doors opened, and he goes into the presence of God for us, offering up his righteousness and his shed blood, and all his people go under his wing, following him. I understand it, people say. They're all figures of Christ and his work and what he'd do. But... When we read about the future of Israel, oh no, surely that's got to be literal. When we read other prophecies, they've got to be literally fulfilled. So we're expecting the Jews to be re-established and the temple to be reconstructed and uh, the last battles of the world to be fought with bows and arrows, archers and shields and spears. It's all got to be literal. Listen, says Christ. It isn't literally Elijah. He typifies, symbolizes John the Baptist. You have to understand the prophecies are symbols and figures of what will happen in the end times. And when you come to the New Testament, the new Israel is the Jewish Gentile church of Jesus Christ and what happened to Israel of old figures, typifies the New Testament Church of Christ. Well, I just mentioned that on the end because a key to prophecy and understanding it actually flows out of the transfiguration. We've looked at the purposes of the transfiguration. We've looked at the Gaining of close communion in the three privileged disciples. We've looked just momentarily at the secrets of the kingdom and also a key to prophecy. It's rather a lot, I'm afraid. May the Lord bless our understanding and our hearts.